I really started to get a sense of how important the proper degree of confidence is, not being overconfident or underconfident. Sammy informed me that I was both. I managed to be both under and overconfident at the same time. <laughs> that's the was, worst. Yeah. But like everyone is, you know, that's the difficult thing about it is that everyone is at different moments over and underconfident. Hello and welcome to the Seven Sage Podcast. I'm JY Ping, and on today's episode, I speak with Seven Sager James, who scored a 179 on his November 2020 LSAT. This was his fifth official score, obtained after studying for three years. James and I spoke about overcoming mostly difficulties with RC, but also some in logical reasoning as well. I was delighted to find out that James was also one of Sammy's students, and unsurprisingly spoke very highly of her. So, without further ado, please enjoy the episode. I have Seven Sager James here with me. James, welcome to the podcast. Hi, JY. Thank you so much for having me. You got a 179 on the November 2020 flex, uh, but before that, you had taken the LSAT four times. Your first score was a 166, and you started with a diagnostic of a 147. So, I would love to find out about how you studied, how you improved. It looks to me, knowing nothing about what you did in terms of your studying, that your improvements came rapidly in just six months in 2020 from May to November, right? Where you got 166 as your first official score and then 179 as your last official score. But I also know that you studied for three years. So in true LSAT fashion, can I please ask you to resolve or reconcile this seeming discrepancy. Yes, absolutely. I'd, I'd be happy to. So the first thing I should say up front is that I did not remotely make those 13 points of improvement in, in six months. Realistically, I think I was pretty much at my final level of ability when I went into the May 2020 exam. Gotcha. What happened there was a lot of, of testing errors and issues that I had with ProctorU. I see. Sorry. So if I could just have you clarify, when you say you're in sort of your final form, you mean like even going into May 2020 when you got your 166, your prep test scores were already, what, where were they? In the 170s? Oh, yeah. When I went into the May 2020 and got the 166, my PT scores were consistently 175. Gotcha. If not above that. So I might have improved a little bit in those six months. I think my my PT scores on average bumped up another couple of points, but I was in the upper 170s consistently at that time. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. So then what happened? You mentioned there were some testing abnormalities. Yes. So I've taken the LSAT actually five times as a result. So it was a bit of a wild ride. When I went to take it for the first time in May 2020, I had taken several PTs before that. I felt really good. I felt prepared. I was consistently scoring in my target range. And I sat down and I started the test. And I, I felt pretty good that logical reasoning went pretty well. Games went pretty well. And then reading comp was my very last section. And reading comp had always been the section that I struggled with the most, it took me the longest time to get a handle on, so I was already a little bit nervous going in. So in the section, I was going through it, and I got through the first passenger too okay, mm -hmm. but then halfway through the section, the proctor window just collapsed, and the entire test turned off on me. Oh, So I think my heart rate must have been something like 200 at that point. I was freaking out. It was a, a long delay, but we eventually got the test back up and running, myself and the proctor. Uh -huh. They insisted that I didn't lose time. I feel like I looked at that timer before the test collapsed, and I think that it kept going for a little while after that. Right. But the bigger issue was once the test window was brought back up and I was back in the test, my scroll wheel was all the way at the bottom and kind of locked there. Oh. So... It really was just so many things that, that came together. So I had just started the comparative passage, but since my scroll wheel was at the bottom, I couldn't see any of passage A or the bit of passage B that actually says passage B. So I didn't even know I was on a comparative passage, much less that I had missed the first. So I thought I was just reading this one tiny passage in isolation, 
but none of the questions made sense. And then I was flipping through them, I realized it was a comparative, and was trying to go back and work out the scroll wheel issue and all of that, and reading comp just was a disaster. So that ended up being my 166. That's ridiculous. But okay, I guess if I had to defend the LSAC here, I can see that the May 2020 flex was their first time administering the flex. Yeah. So I guess they hadn't worked out their technical issues yet. But that really is awful. Did they even offer you an option to retake to cancel that score? Because that's just so ridiculous to have your tester crash in the middle of taking a section. I got the normal offer to cancel that everyone else got, but I didn't get anything special like a retake later that week or a refund or anything like that. They were just basically their attitude was, oh, we're sorry. Try again later. It happened. Yeah. I remember the email going out from Elsa saying something like, it was an overwhelming success. Only 1% of users experienced issues. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah. But uh, that, that 1% ended up being a fairly big number. <laughs> <laughs> to be in the 1%. So, okay, so then you immediately scheduled for the June, the following flex test, right? Yes, I did. And it was kind of the same deal. I had really tried to put out of my head the anxiety that kind of came on as a result of the issues with the May flex, because like you said, it was the first flex administration. Obviously, they had to roll it out quickly. There were going to be little bugs. So I took a few more PTs, was still scoring in my target range, and sat down to take the June administration. Now, this time, I want to say my first section was games, mm -hmm. which went pretty well. So I got through that, and then reading comp was my second section. And I started the reading comp, but again, about halfway through, the proctor calls me like through the computer, almost like a Skype call. Like with the ringing and everything? Yeah. Okay, that's weird. So the timer's still going at this point. It's not like anything's been paused. I'm in the middle of the section doing it. Uh-huh. And they call me. I pick up the call and I'm you know, saying like, hello, hello. <laughs> and like, they can't hear me, but I can hear them. And it went back and forth and the call went dead. Okay. So at that point, I really wasn't sure what to do because I figured if they were calling me, it was because maybe there was some issue, like they couldn't see me. I was going to get flagged for testing irregularity. So I didn't want to just keep going with the section. So I was trying to call them back for a little bit. So we played phone tag for a while. And then eventually they just sent me a text message basically saying, it's all good. Please continue in the section. Wow. <laughs> it's all good? Yeah. Like, it's fine. Just keep going. You're, Everything you're is fine. You just had a delivery. I wanted you to come downstairs and get your food. <laughs> Honestly, I felt like that dog in the meme where everything is on fire and it's just like, everything is fine. We're good here. Oh my God. Okay. All right. So at that point, I knew reading comp was just completely ruined. There was no salvaging that section because I had lost yeah. so much time. I mean, I suppose it wouldn't even help that much, but during that phone tag interface, the timer was still running? Correct. Yes. Jeez. All right. And then I got to logical reasoning as my last section, but I couldn't really get out of the headspace yeah. from the reading comp. Yeah. And I didn't even end up keeping the score from that. I, I knew it was terrible, so I just canceled it and didn't even bother with it. Okay, so that was attempt number two, another technical difficulty. This time you canceled the score. And Correct. you signed up for July? Yes. Okay, how'd that one go? July, thankfully, there were no proctor issues. Okay. But at this point, after having two tests back-to-back -back in two months with really significant issues, I was so stressed out of my mind and, and sat down before the test had even started, and I was just waiting at the computer, and like my hands were shaking from the nerves and everything. Uh. So I was just in absolute basket case during that test. So I, I finished it with no proctor issues, but... I really didn't have a good feeling about it at all. I decided to keep the score just because I think I was being overly optimistic, telling myself, like, you did better than you think you did. You didn't have any testing issues, so things should have gone according to plan. But that was not the case. I predicted that I felt like I had gotten about a 168, and it turns out I was only off by one. So I got a, a 167 on that administration, which was only okay. one point higher from my first take, where I couldn't see the reading comp section right. for half the section. Right. Okay. And then after that, I was I was very angry at the LSAT and everything, so I didn't even register for August. I, I took about a month off. 
I did some meditation and started practicing that more often to be able to keep a handle on my nerves going into the test. Mm -hmm. Took the October 2020 administration, and it was definitely better. So I, I calmed down, but I still had some anxiety, but I got through it, and I scored a 171 that exam. Great. And did you decide, I mean, obviously you took it one more time, but how did you decide that you could have done better? Was there a part of you that was like, okay, great, I'm good now? Every part of me was like, great, I'm good now. I don't <laughs> want to touch the LSAT again. Thank you, sayonara. It was actually my my study group, though. I had a couple of other seven sagers, and we'd all been working together in a study group. And they knew where I was PTing, and they knew that you know I was still missing my average by six points easily. Right. And they were the ones that said, you know, you can still take the November exam. You can still apply before Thanksgiving. That's plenty early in the cycle. Right. So they talked me into it and I did. And I, I think it helped too because I had broken the 170 barrier. So I was able to just go on autopilot more, yeah. so to speak. Yeah. Like I, I knew I had a score that gave me a reasonable chance of success at just about any school. So I was able to get out of my head and just do what I practiced to do. Right. Okay. And that's how you got the 179? Yeah, that was my 179. Wow. That's incredible. So from May to November, the improvements came from, as I can see it, two places. One, lack of technical difficulties, which is so silly. You would think you can take it for granted, but again, in true LSAC fashion, the test will punish you for making assumptions. Yes, it will. <laughs> but two, the second causal component sounds to me like you're getting a better grip on yourself in terms of your psychology, in terms of your anxiety and just being calmer in your approach. Yeah, those are absolutely both the, the two things that I would say made the difference there. Okay, okay. So I definitely want to back up and talk about all the studying that you did for three years to get to the point where you were prep testing in the mid-high 170s. But before we do that, I'm wondering if you drew any lessons from your five LSAT administrations in that six-month period in 2020. Oh, drew any lessons. What I'm getting at is the fact that the score improvements sometimes come from a better understanding of the material, but I think in your case, you already had a really solid understanding of the material. I'm talking about the logic, the grammar. Was there anything other than just getting your anxiety under control? Or if it was just getting your anxiety under control, like how did you do it? Like, did you have any techniques or anything specific that you did? I think the biggest thing was getting my anxiety under control. There also was an, an element of, of stubbornness, I suppose. And maybe this was a failing on my part to some extent that I, I had put so much time and energy and blood, sweat, and tears into the LSAT. Mm -hmm. And we'll get to this later, but I had a long, long, long plateau where I was stuck in the upper 160s. Mm -hmm. And breaking into the 170s was such a huge deal for me mm -hmm. that it felt so incomplete. It felt like I was almost leaving a piece of myself on the table to walk away without a score in the 170s because I, mm -hmm. I had taken an entire year, basically. I had delayed law school for a whole year to be able to go from like a 168 to something in the 170s yeah on a pt and then to stick with my 167 would have basically just been to say yeah i threw the last year away for all intents and purposes so it was a refusal to do that and then with respect to the anxiety like i said i i took up meditation so every morning and evening i would set aside just a, a little bit of time and waking up early sucks but it really does help for this so if you can wake up early and take maybe 20, 25 minutes and just kind of sit and be quiet with yourself and center yourself in the world and your surroundings and really set your sights on those things that actually matter and those that you can push to the side. I think that really helps set the tone for the day. I think it makes you more efficient and I think it makes you more focused. Okay. For people who may be not so familiar with meditation, and frankly, for people who think 
skeptically of meditation. Do you have a sense of why meditation helped you? Not something that I can put my finger on and really articulate. I suppose I should because I, I was certainly a skeptic of meditation for many years, and I tried it at the urging of a friend, and I basically just was at a point where, well, nothing else has helped, so I might as well <laughs> give this a shot. Right. So I, I have no idea why it helps, but I just know that it does, and it makes a difference, and I've continued doing it even now that the LSAT's done and over with. Okay. Do you use an app, or do you go to YouTube and find some guided meditation videos, or how did you do it? No, I've never used a guided meditation video. I'll use an app sometimes, but it's usually not guided. It's usually just soundtracks, mostly like nature stuff, so sounds of the forest, sounds of the ocean, something like that. Gotcha. And kind of just do some some deep breathing on my own. Gotcha. Okay, great. So let's back up now and talk about when you first got into the LSAT, when you first started prepping and the journey leading up to your first official take. So maybe we can start with your academic background. What did you study in college? And do you think that had any effect on your LSAT prep? <laughs> no, quite the reverse, actually. <laughs> so I started out in college as a criminal justice major because I was told by my admissions counselor that that is what pre-law students do. And therefore, that was my major and I went with it. I did not like it all that much. And because of that, I, I ended up adding on philosophy as a second major about halfway through. And I don't think that that had any effect on my LSAT prep because I was relatively proficient in my LSAT prep by the time I did that. Oh, I so see. I think actually the reverse is true. I see. All my LSAT prep actually made me grasp a lot of the philosophy much easier. Because, you know, by the time I got to 102 dealing with conditional logic and everything, I was like, oh, I saw JY's videos on this. This is easy. That's so funny. I usually tell students that philosophy classes in undergrad are helpful in at least two ways. One in understanding what it means to evaluate an argument. What does it mean for to evaluate premises that support or don't support conclusions? And also the more formal aspects of philosophy that deal with logic. But for you, it was actually the other way around because you already studied for the LSAT first, which ended up helping you with your philosophy courses, which is great. <laughs> That's awesome. It definitely shows that the skills are, are transferable both ways. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, I, I started studying for the LSAT in 2017, and my arrogance knew no bounds. It was really <laughs> something to behold because I, I had always been relatively successful academically. I was able to do well in classes and I didn't have to strain too hard over them. I had looked around on the internet and was like, okay, what's a good LSAT score? 170. That's a good LSAT score. Okay, I'll take a diagnostic. I'll study for a couple of months. I'll go get a 170, call it a day. I was humbled very quickly. My diagnostic, like you said, was a 147, and to be honest, I think a lot of that was luck, because I, I don't think I even rigorously enforced the timing requirement there, oh, so right. that might be almost more like a, a blind review diagnostic of 147, <laughs> Okay, and I kind of sat there and wasn't really sure what to do, because I never had any friends that went to law school, so I didn't have a, really a touchstone or anything to go off of. I ended up trying to self-study for about a month or so, saw that I wasn't really getting anywhere. So I went with the PowerScore Bibles, which I feel like is a rite of passage for LSAT studiers at this point. Uh -huh. Read all three of those cover to cover, took another LSAT and scored worse on it. So decided that hadn't really done much for me. And after that, actually, I found Seven Sage. And I'd been studying for the LSAT for probably four or five months at this point and was getting kind of down about it. You know, I've tried a bunch of things, nothing's working. So I'll try the seventh stage. It's, it's getting good reviews. Mm -hmm. I went through the core curriculum and I did it religiously because I was getting a sense of how far in over my head I was. Mm -hmm. So I did every single lesson. I did every single problem set and you know, like for the flaw wow. questions, there's like 26 yeah. problem sets. Yeah, that's, wow, that's incredible. Okay, so I feel weirdly obligated to apologize to you because it's not meant, <laughs> I, didn't, I never meant for people to do all of them. I mean, it was like there, 
you do some of them and then the idea is you kind of move on and they're always there if you need to come back and review and like target but i guess i shouldn't apologize because you did fine you ended up doing great oh yeah i had made my decision at this point that i was going to get a good lsat score uh -huh. if it killed me basically so i did all <laughs> okay. of that yeah i took all of the other advice that you mentioned in there so i made flashcards for all of the conditional logic indicator words great. for all of the valid and invalid argument forms great. all of that and that took me several months to get through the core curriculum okay uh doing it like that okay came out took my first test after that and was was really astounded i got a 167 wow okay that's huge gains yeah and at that point the highest lsat score i'd ever seen i think was a, a 153 wow so that was 14 points or something like that from doing the core curriculum the way i did yeah let me emphasize what you just said it's not just doing the core curriculum it's doing the core curriculum the way that you did it because <laughs> that part is important because i feel like the way you did it is not the way that most people do the core curriculum most people kind of just you know rush their way through the core curriculum which you know i guess it's okay as long as you realize that if you rush your way through the core curriculum it's almost guaranteed that you're going to have to at some point return to parts of the core curriculum and slow down and you know review it but okay, so 167, you said, on your prep test? Yeah, and I suppose I just want to emphasize, since you just said that, like when I say I did all of the problem sets, I did them all timed first. Mm -hmm. So for like the logical reasoning questions would give myself, you know, a minute and 20 seconds to do each one. Right. And then I blind reviewed each question. Wow. So I wrote out explanations for pretty much all those as well. Like I tried to squeeze every bit of juice I possibly could out of the core curriculum. Wow. Okay. That's amazing. You're like the ideal student. <laughs> <laughs> I, I certainly did not feel that way at the time <laughs> okay so how long had it been at this point counting from when you first started studying for the LSAT I want to say at this point I was a little over a year into it I want to say I'd been studying for about 13 or 14 months gotcha a little bit over a year into it and already you're seeing like 10 ish points or sorry 20-ish points improvement from your diagnostic. Yeah. In the high 140s to high 160s. Okay. So were you happy with that? Or are you still like, eh, I don't know. I feel like I can do better. A little bit of both. Mm -hmm. It was such a, a boost in my score that I was ecstatic. I thought I was king of the world that night. <laughs> but I also knew I wanted to do better. I wanted that 170 score. And then on top of that, I was like, it's only three points, you know, yeah. four if I want to break it. Yeah. And clearly, I just did the core curriculum. If that took me, what, like five, six months, and I came up 14 points, well, study for another few weeks, going to be a 170. You see the pattern here with, with my own arrogance. Um, <laughs> as soon as you score a win, it seems to come back. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So Okay. Well, I also understand the logic, which I think it does make sense, right? Because 167 to 170, if you want to break it 171, that's four scaled points, which in raw points, I mean, depending on the curve, we're talking about something like five, maybe six more questions, right? Again, depending on the curve. So yeah, I think it is very reasonable to think that that's achievable considering you hadn't even started prep testing in earnest yet, which is where most seven stagers or just most else adders frankly, see their increases. Okay, well, I'm glad that I wasn't totally unreasonable then. <laughs> Not unreasonable. I didn't say anything about arrogant. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And arrogantly reasonable. Arrogantly, we'll accept that. Yes. <laughs> okay, so let's hear more from your arrogantly reasonable past self. So yeah, I had talked to a couple of people on the forums, and I felt like I had the formulas. So it was like, okay, just basically keep doing what I've been doing, but with prep tests. So take one time to prep test a week, blind review it yeah do some drills to target weaknesses rinse and repeat you know presto changeo outcomes of 170 something in a little bit and that was definitely not the case so i took pts for i'll say probably two months and using that formula mm -hmm. and really didn't make any improvement i, I didn't hit 170 once okay. um, i bounced around between 166 and 169 okay and at that point, I decided, okay, I, I must be doing something wrong here. So I tried to go back to the drawing board and focused more on like section drilling for a little while. 
It's like, okay, I'm going to do just sections of logical reasoning now and try to iron these out. Yeah. And spent more time on the analytics, looking at, okay, you know, I've been missing weakening questions lately. Let's drill those, figure out what's going on there. Right. And worked on that and came back to the drawing board and kept taking PTs and kept taking PTs and my scores weren't going anywhere. Okay. Like clockwork, I would get a 168 over and over and over and over again. Okay. So this is the plateau that you referenced earlier in the high 160s. Yes. I spent eight or nine months wow. getting a 168 over and over and over again. And it was- That's so frustrating because it's tantalizingly close to what you want to get. It was. Yeah. Over and over because I would look and one of the things that bothered me so much was that I would miss easy questions, Ugh. like easy one-star questions. Ugh. And I would go back in blind review and it's like, you know, a one-star sufficiency necessity flaw or something right. that I just, I misread the answer choice and I got it wrong. And that was the reason I didn't get a 170 on the PT. Right. And I felt robbed every time that happened. Can you tell me where the questions you were missing were coming from? Was it evenly distributed across the three sections or were you extra bad in some section and extra good in some other section? No, it was not remotely even. Oh, okay. <laughs> As part of the core curriculum, I had religiously foolproofed all the logic games, okay. one through 35. Okay. So I was- That's locked down. Yeah, I was pretty consistently at minus zero Great. on games at Great. this point. Okay. I would miss, on average, maybe three questions in an LR section. Mm -hmm. And RC was just what was killing me. I would bounce between like minus six and minus eight. I see. So with the flex test, there's only one LR, but- you know, as you were prep testing, there were still two LR sections. So would you attribute your shortfall from 170 mostly to RC, or do you think LR also has something to do with it? LR definitely did have something to do with it, yeah, because my average was like a minus three, but there was still times I'd have a bad day and I'd go like minus four, or minus five. Okay. But RC was really what drove me crazy. Gotcha. Because it, it seems like it should be the easiest section. Right. You know, I was a philosophy major. I can read. I feel like I know what things mean when I read them. Yeah. But the LSAT was telling me, I don't have any idea what I'm reading. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay. So what did you do? You're stuck in this high 160s plateau for, what was it, like six to eight months? Eight to nine. Eight to nine months. Okay. And this is on top of having studied for like, what, a year already? Yeah. So at this point, I'm, I'm coming up on the two-year mark right. of studying. And I'm starting to get nervous because I'm getting the sense that I'm burning through PTs, even at a pace of, you know, one a week to one every week and a half. Right. I'm starting to get to the point there, there aren't that many left. Right. So this is when I went and got a tutor because I was completely out of ideas and couldn't figure this out for myself. Right. So after bouncing around for a little bit, um, I ended up working with Sammy, who I know you're well acquainted with, and she... 100% Sammy is the reason that I, I broke that plateau that I ended up in the 170s. She was an absolutely incredible tutor. Wow. Yeah. I spoke to Chris in an earlier podcast who also attributed his success to Sammy. So this is amazing. It's a treat for me to be able to speak to two of her students who are very successful. But yeah, tell me, what did she do? How specifically does she help you see past what you weren't seeing? So we did a few different things. The first was, and this is going way back to the dinosaur age here before Seven Sage had the digital tester. So you, you remember back when people had to use the yardsticks and everything to put their iPhone up so they could record themselves yeah. taking a test? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I remember. I remember putting up a post about <laughs> like the hardware of setting this up with tape and like an iPhone holder and how to like get the angle right and whatever, make sure the lighting's good to, so you can record yourself and then watch the footage and then take timing notes on the footage so that you understand how much time you were spending per question and then analyze that data. The whole freaking thing took like an hour and a half just to get data from one section. So then you can start the process of like utilizing the data to hopefully tease out something actionable. But yeah, Stone Age, back before the digital tester. 
keep in mind again that at this point I'm about two years into studying for this test right. and my friends and family already thought I was nuts. When my parents came home one day and saw me using bar stools and yardsticks to tape my phone there, I truly wish I could have recorded the look on their faces for posterity. Yeah. They thought I had absolutely lost the plot. Yeah, wow. They were probably just like <laughs> one week away from calling an intervention on you. Yeah. So that was the first thing that Sammy and I really worked on. She read a couple passages with me. Actually, yeah. So that was what we did first. She read some passages with me. She'd have me read a paragraph and link paragraphs together and read a passage and basically tell her what I was getting from it. Mm -hmm. And she she was <laughs> disturbed, I, th I think was the word she used later, uh -huh. at how little I was comprehending what I was reading and getting out of it. Yeah. And when we started doing the timing, she really enforced some rigorous, at least at that time, what I thought were rigorous time constraints on me. That first round... I should never be using more than 60 seconds on a question. It doesn't matter. Hard, easy, nothing more than 60 seconds. And she also told me that I was spending too little time reading the passage, which was really counterintuitive to me. But that was what we did first. And then we worked in that framework for a while and slowly built upon that with some other things. Mm -hmm. And it really struck me because I had initially been under the impression that, and I don't know why I would think this because it doesn't make sense, but that the key to doing well in reading comp is reading the passage as fast as possible and being able to devote maximum time to the questions because, you know, that's what I want to get right. So that's where I should spend my time. Mm -hmm. And I, I was really shooting for three minutes of passage as kind of a benchmark for mm -hmm. my reading time. Yeah. And Sammy told me, that she had struggled with reading comp for a long time and that she had to just kind of let it go and she would be fine taking significantly more time than that to read, that she was a slow reader even and was still capable of scoring phenomenally well. So what I did at first was I started with untimed work and went through and was filling out templates and recording all the information for the different paragraphs, you know, what's the low res, what's the high res, what's the structure? And then for the whole passage, you know, what's the main point? What's the organization, the tone? Yeah. Is it a cookie yeah. cutter? And I was translating all of this to the timed work, which was really difficult for me. So as I was kind of putting aside this mindset of, okay, I need to read through it as fast as possible, I might have overcorrected a little bit. So I was basically going through that whole template process but articulating everything in my head as I was reading. Mm. So it just wasn't feasible to do while the clock was running because it would take me seven or eight minutes at least to do. So I, I kind of ended up in this you know ping pong situation where I was either reading way too fast or way too slow. And what Sammy and I did was it got me to a point where I looked at it like a logic game, that the questions are really almost ancillary to the task here. My task is to understand this passage, and that's where I need to invest my time. But I need to invest my time in the passage in an efficient way. So with a logic game, I wouldn't go through and brute force, and using brute force to solve for all worlds by just, okay, let's put A in one, all my different possibilities there. Like, no, I would use rules to force out specific game boards to show me what all the possibilities are. Mm-hmm. So in reading comp, we tried a few different things, and she described to me this technique she had where she would basically read the passage, record all of this information, and kind of hold it in her head like a blob, and then would use that blob and just push it up against all of the questions and was able to force out answer choices that way. Hmm. So I want to dig more into what you just said, but... First, about the timing element, it's really important that everyone finds his or her sweet spot for timing. I've often found that for people for whom it takes a long time to improve their scores, the sort of read slowly strategy works better. I'm biased because I'm like that. I'm a slow reader, and I just find that it just makes 
better sense for me to devote more time up front on the passage to get a clear understanding at the very minimum, at least of the structure of the passage before moving on to the questions. But then even so, I still have my own line where it is possible to spend too much time on the passage, right? So I think I heard from you a lot of that work that you did was finding where that line was. You don't want to be spending too much time. You don't want to be spending too little time. Initially, you were just blitzing through the passage, but that wasn't too helpful. And then once you started implementing this new strategy, you were too slow. You were spending too much time. So then you kind of had to find your balance. So maybe you can say more about how you did that and how, you know, taping yourself doing RC and then eventually with the digital tester, how those tools came into play. Yeah, absolutely. So one of the big ways in which I think recording myself and then using the tester helped me was it allowed me to see just how egregious my time wasting was. Oh, yeah. You know, because when you're in the thick of it in a section and you're spending time on a question, it's so easy to fall into that trap of, I just need another second to look at this. I know I can get this. <laughs> yeah. I know I can answer this. And, you know, two minutes go by doing that. Yeah. Honestly, there were times where there'd be one question that I spent about as much time on on the first round as I did reading the passage in its entirety. And it's oh, like, yeah, that, that's insane. That cannot yeah, happen. That cannot happen. That cannot happen. You have more questions on RC than LR, right? Like it's on average 26, 27 questions on RC. So you actually have less time per question already just because there are more questions. But on top of that, there are four big passages that you have to read. So you really have way less time per question for the RC questions as compared to LR questions. So yeah, there's just no getting around that fact. You are severely time-constrained. So it's really important to, as a first step, become aware of the passage of time as you are doing the questions, right? Not to just be in this mindless state where time is passing and you don't even realize it. Yeah, that's absolutely true. I think the other thing that was a big deal for me was modulating my confidence and this is kind of the first point in my prep where I really started to get a sense of how important the proper degree of confidence is, not being overconfident or underconfident. Sammy informed me that I was both. I managed to be both under and overconfident at the same time. <laughs> That's the was, worst. Yeah. But like everyone is, you know? That's the difficult thing about it is that everyone is at different moments over and underconfident. Right? So that's why it's so hard to get a handle on it. Like There are easier cases. It doesn't have to be that way. There are easier cases where some students are just systematically overconfident. Okay, well, then you can just tell that person, listen, you're just not as good as you think you are. Right? Like You keep thinking you're getting these questions right, spending 40 seconds on it, but then look, you're not, and you don't even realize that you're in trouble. So then you just need to systematically slow the hell down. Right? Or the other way. But like you know, for most people, you're committing both over and underconfident errors. So... Yeah, what did you guys do? The biggest thing was she actually had me go back to untimed work. That was what amazed me is how much of the work that we did was untimed. Yeah. And having me sit down and do drills where I would read a passage or read paragraphs or something and attempt to take the same information that I would if I were doing a full template, but take it and get to a point where I could trust my intuition that I had the information. So uh -huh. without actually any questions, you know, so I would just read the paragraph for the passage and then go and try to write down all the details on a piece of paper and getting a sense of what it felt like when I actually had the understanding that I needed to have. So that when I translated this to timed work, I would almost just have a conversation with myself. So I would read a paragraph or read the whole passage and just in a split second basically ask myself if I had to sit down and articulate what all these different things are, what the main point is, the purpose, the organization, the tone, could I do it? And if I felt like I could honestly answer that question, yes, I could, then I would just move on and not even bother. If I answer that question, no, I feel like there is something that I would struggle to articulate then I would actually stop and take the time to, okay, let me try to articulate this. Let me dig deeper into this. Yeah, that makes sense. And it helped, I presume? Yes, it very much did. I hit a stride of about four minutes a passage on average after that. For a difficult passage, I might go four and a half, sometimes even five minutes. And 
as a function of that, though, that dramatically reduces the time you have for questions. Yeah. So I would spend on average probably 18 minutes reading passages, which only leaves you 17 then for the 27 questions. Yeah. But it worked well for me because I had done so much untimed work teaching myself how to pull these little details and these you know low resolution ideas from the passage that by the time I was able to get my reading speed adjusted to where it needed to be, I was able to move through the questions fast enough because of my comprehension that it wasn't even an issue anymore. Yeah, what you're saying sounds very familiar to me. I sometimes look at my own RC live take recordings, and now that we have the digital tester, I see from the timing reports, the time that students spend on questions in RC, sometimes the questions are like, five seconds, 10 seconds, 15 seconds per question on a bunch of questions, right? And some of the slower ones clock in still at under one minute per question. And that's just a reflection of the student having done a good job comprehending what they were reading. Yeah, absolutely. I would say towards the end of my prep, I was averaging definitely under 30 seconds per question. Yeah. That sounds about right. Okay, so that's RC, and that is how you broke out of the plateau? So yeah, so that was how I broke out of the plateau, and that was what got me to a, a pretty consistent minus three in reading comp. Gotcha. Which, which was good, because at that point, I was in the 170s. I was scoring probably about 173 on average. Yeah, if you're minus three on reading comp on average and minus three in LR, and at this point you're taking four sections, so that's two minus threes, two LR sections. So you're at a total of minus nine on average per prep test, right? Well, yes, at this point, my LR had improved a little bit as well. Oh, great. I had probably gotten down to more like a minus two, so it was about minus four total in LR. I see. So on average, like minus seven raw points. Yeah. I would say gotcha. that's about right. Gotcha. Yeah, depending on the curve, it's like low. Sometimes, I mean, I don't know. You might even be able to hit a 175 with a generous curve on a minus seven. Oh, I was over the moon if I could ever hit something that high. <laughs> okay. So you're looking at the low 170s scores. Well, that's still a big improvement. I mean, just overcoming that plateau is huge. So many people get stuck and caught on that plateau and just you know don't know how to improve. And actually, I didn't say this when you first mentioned it, but I really think a lot of people prematurely look for a tutor, but I wouldn't say that about you at all. I think, in fact, you looked for the tutor at just the right moment because you really had done everything you could do by yourself up to that point, right? Like you weren't cheating yourself. You weren't taking shortcuts. You were thoroughly, painstakingly, you know, blood, sweat, tears, reviewing your tests, right? And it had already been, I think you said, coming up on two years. So at that point, I think it does make sense to look for help with someone who can work with you and diagnose specifically your performance-related issues. Yeah, I certainly felt like it was warranted at that point. Man, in reading comp especially, once you get down that minus three range, that is where the points are just unbelievably difficult to pick up because yes. that's when you're missing, you know, like only the most difficult, yes. most strongly supported, where it's this tiny little detail they stuck somewhere in the passage. <laughs> I think that makes sense to talk about that next, which is, you know, each band of improvement comes with its own difficulties. Normally, I don't even talk about it anymore once someone gets past 170, because it's just like, at that point, it's just your preference. Like, how much of a masochist are you that you want to go from the low 170s to high 170s? Because all the things that I tell you about, like, listen, you need to try to miss questions, right? You need to make sure that you are going through your first round before I like to get it to the end of the first round in LR sections before like 25, 26 minutes with 10 minutes to spare to do with round two. And you can only do that if you skip a bunch of questions with the understanding that you're not going to get back to all of them because you're trying to pick and choose the questions that you miss because you have an allotment of questions that you're trying to miss, right? But all of that assumes that you're just trying to get a 170, which gives you a raw score of like, you know, minus 10-ish questions to miss. That's 10 freebies you get to spend. But all those assumptions are false if you want to get into the high 170s, right? So tell me about that transition and that improvement. Yeah. So with respect to those last few points in RC, I'm definitely a black sheep. And most people I've talked to 
disagree with me, and that's okay. They all got phenomenal LSAT scores, and I, I'm sure they know what they're talking about. I began highlighting religiously using the the highlighting functions on the digital tester. Mm-hmm. I employed them for several different purposes. The first one, the main one, is that I would try to highlight the little tiny out-of-the-way details, something similar to what Can't Get Right does. So if I'd read a passage, I'd be tracking the argument as I'm reading. Like, okay, this is a premise, this is a sub-conclusion. And when I would see something that just seems just totally tangential, like it was just thrown in there, I would highlight that. It's like, I could see them asking Just in case. Yeah, like like five-star MSS question (laughs) on that detail there. (laughs) Right, because that detail doesn't add too much to the support of the main argument flow but it was mentioned so it was there so it's true and because it's true it might be able to support some other statement as an inference and you're thinking most people won't track that so they wanted to create a really hard curve breaker question that would throw most test takers off it seems likely or at least seems plausible that they would use a detail like that so you're just going to flag it just in case right just in case they do pull something like that exactly and there's plenty of them so there were tons of times <laughs> where you know I, I would flag something i would highlight something and it didn't come up in a question but i would say more more than 50 percent of the time once i got proficient at this probably 75 percent of the time when a really hard curve breaker question would come up it would be about a detail that i tagged yeah okay sounds like you actually cracked the lsat writer's psychology in designing <laughs> this test see i would approach something i mean look just First of all, I don't try to aim for a high one. Even now, I don't try to aim for a high 170 score. Every time they release a new prep test, I'm happy if I can just get above a 170. That's like totally fine for me. So with that caveat out of the way, the way I approach details like what you just mentioned, I'm just like, I'm not even going to pretend like I read this. This is just whatever. There's some detail. If I remember it, okay, great. If I don't, that's fine. And if I hit a question like that, I'm probably just like the inference question that relies on this tiny little detail. I'm just going to be scratching my head like, I don't recall having read this. Okay, flag it, move on. And, you know, no sweat. If I don't get back to it, no sweat. With that attitude, probably you just can't consistently get minus zero on RC, right? Like if I get a minus zero on RC, it's because I got lucky and they didn't have, they didn't have questions that were like that. Or like I just had all the time in the world for whatever reason I finished the section super fast and I could devote like three minutes to pouring over the passage, mining out the detail. But yeah, that's incredible that you actually were able to systematically implement this strategy and have it work out. So fair to say your RC was clocking in at average minus zero? Yeah, minus zero, minus one at the end. Yeah. But you know, you also had to make improvements in LR. Your your November 2020 flex 179, you don't know what you missed, right? They didn't release anything to you. Oh, um, I know which one I missed. <laughs> how do you know that? Well, it, almost exactly what we were talking about. Well, I suppose that's not true. I suppose it's theoretically possible. I'm I'm wrong. It was RC. It was the third passage. It was a really hard MSS. And I just read it, read through the answer choices, read through the answer choices again. It's like, I have no earthly idea what this could possibly be. And I I moved on and skipped it in 20 seconds. And I came back at the very end, still didn't know. And I just did like any, meeny, miny, moan guest. (laughs) Okay. So maybe I was too quick to praise you for having cracked the LSAT writers. (laughs) psychological tricks so it sounds like they got you good on the assumption that your 20 percent chance of randomly guessing didn't pay off and that was the question you actually missed then yeah okay but still you know minus one that's really good you that that means you didn't get anything wrong in lr correct i'm pretty sure that's the one i missed so yeah lr and lg were both minus zero i think yeah okay so how did you improve from you know again it's the same issue right like going from minus six to minus three in a section okay that requires a certain set of strategies Going from minus three to minus zero, that's quite different. That's much, much harder. Each incremental point you're picking up is harder than the previous incremental point that you picked up. So how did you do that in LR? So in LR, it it was definitely different. There were, I want to say, two big categories of improvement that I made, one in procedure and one in substance. Mm -hmm. With respect to the substance, it was a matter of just getting really, really painstaking with the difficult questions and what makes the questions work the way they do. Yeah. And mm-hmm. here I just, again, I, I tried to follow all of the advice that I got from you and from Seven Sage. So I would take the wrong answer choices and try to make them correct. 
Mm, I would yeah. take the correct answer choice and try to change it in as small a way as possible in order to make it wrong. I would make analogies for mm -hmm. stimuli that confused me, a bunch of stuff like that. Yeah. Very time-intensive review strategies. Oh, yeah. I mean, there were times I would spend two hours on one LR question. Yeah. This is, has been a running theme. Basically, everybody I speak to on this podcast says something like this. Like, they can write a whole page for one LR question. Oh, easily. Right? Easily, yeah. easily, easily. Yeah. Yeah. So while I wish I could clone all of you and run a randomized controlled experiment to prove that what we're observing is not merely correlation and rather actual causation, I can't do that. Not that I'm constrained by ethics or anything. Um, <laughs> just I, I physically don't have the powers to do that. But I'm pretty sure what we're observing, this correlation, is actually causation. I think it is the fact that you guys are just spending so much time with the substance of the question, playing around with it in all sorts of different ways to see how they constructed such a difficult question. I'm pretty sure that is a causal component to your improvement. But you also mentioned form as well. Yes, and this is another area where I have to give all the credit to Sammy without question. I did not want to give up questions. And honestly, uh -huh. it was harder to skip questions the better I scored because yeah. the higher I would score, I mean, once I started getting the low 170s, and my BR scores were obviously very high 170s, it was like, I know I can answer this question. There's yeah. no reason in the world I should skip, you know, question five. Like, I can do yeah. this. And there were, I suppose, three things with flagging that we worked on. And the first was just skipping much faster and trying to get through logical reasoning questions in about 45 seconds apiece, if possible. Yeah, okay, okay. The other was limiting my flags and being much more rigorous about that, because I basically flagged any question that I didn't feel 100% sure on, which mm -hmm. translated into... I'm not kidding, about 18 or 19 flags a section. Okay, well, that's a disaster for your round two because now you have way too much signal, which effectively means you have no signal because now you don't know what to look at on round two if you have like more than half the section flagged. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And that's exactly right because I was getting frustrated because I would have some sections still where I didn't have a lot of time left over for round two, but I would have some where I did and I had like, you know, five, six, seven minutes left over but I didn't see a consistent difference in score. Like, why am I not doing substantially better on the sections where I have more time to go back? And it was just because I was wasting all that time looking at questions that didn't need to be flagged. So I was put on a pretty strict flagging diet and <laughs> could, could only, only flag a few questions. And then on top really of funny. that, she directed me to have a more systematic approach for which flags to go back to. Because at that point, I basically would just go numerically. Like, you know, the first question I flagged oh, is five. Right. We're going to start there and we're just going to go to the end of the section. So based on her recommendations, I used a three-column approach for flagging. So as soon as the section starts, I would just draw like basically like a grouping game board with three groups. And you're talking about on your scratch paper? Yeah. Yeah. On my scratch paper. Sorry. Okay. Yeah. Sorry. I just wasn't sure if we were in the... Uh... We're already in the digital testing phase of this. So, okay, on your scratch paper, you would, you would make note. Oh, yeah, we're, we're well into the digital testing phase okay. at this point. So the column one questions would be those where I knew what work needed to be done to resolve my confusion, and I felt like I could accomplish that work in a reasonable uh -huh. amount of time. And then column two would be questions where either of those conditions were failed. So either I wasn't sure what work needed to be done, or I knew, but like it was going to take a long time. Like I was going to have to draw some crazy conditional okay, chain okay. or something like that. I can like see that. like some parallel flaw questions going into that column, because even if you know what the structure is and why it's flawed, you might still have to take a lot of time to analyze five separate long arguments, right, to figure that out. Okay. Exactly. And then column three, and this might have been the most important of them, incidentally, even though it wasn't supposed to be. Column three was just for basically the questions that gave me butterflies, oh. where I finished it, and like I have no reason to think that I got this question wrong. It seemed simple. I liked my answer, but I just had some weird mm. feeling that I'd like mm. to read it again. Yeah. Something about this question didn't feel like 
the cookie cutter-ness snapped into place. Or it did fit, but maybe this corner isn't quite fitting just right, or some residual feeling of unease. Yeah, exactly. So then I would go back, and at the beginning of my second round, I would do the questions in that order. So column one first, then column two, and only then do I go to column three if I've done all the others. I see. I see. Yeah. I can see that column three, the ones that you're pretty sure you got it right, but just feels a little bit weird. That has the highest potential to be where you are being underconfident, right? Where it never should have been flagged in the first place. Was that the intent to ferret out your underconfidence errors? Yes, exactly. Because like I said, I was flagging way too much. Right. And the whole purpose of that column three was to get me to stop wasting my round two time on questions that like I I got right. I almost never missed a column three question. I think I missed like one in like 10 prep tests or something. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. The point was I couldn't keep wasting my round two time there. Right. Right. Did you see a decrease in the number of questions that went into column three over time? I did as I started to understand what it felt like when I was doing a question that I knew would end up becoming a column three question. Uh That kind of in turn was like, oh, I know this feels like a column three question. That means I know even though it feels wrong, I'm probably right and I probably don't even need to bother flagging it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, okay, this is great. It sounds a lot like you are improving a meta skill, right? If we can look at the LSAT as having just sort of base level skills, meaning logic, grammar, you know, analysis, understanding support, understanding analogies, understanding causation, that's like what I'll call base level skills. There's meta skills, skills above that, which is this ability to know when you know something, know when you don't know something, feeling justifiably confident versus unjustifiably confident, right? That's the layer at which that's the realm in which we're operating now. And that's the realm in which I think you're seeing some improvements and these techniques are helping you achieve those improvements. Yeah, that's absolutely true. That's a very good way to put it. Mm, Okay. So that's how you got from like minus, you know, three, four in LR to like a minus zero one in LR. Yeah, it was pretty consistently minus zero. If it was a bad day, it was like a minus one at the end. Yeah, yeah. That's amazing. It took a while to get there. But yeah, it was an amazing feeling the first time I ever got a minus zero. Yeah. So I know you also tutor on Seventh Stage. When did you start doing that? Was it after your November flex? Or did you start before? So I started doing free tutoring long before that, actually. Sammy suggested that I do some free tutoring as a way to both give back to the community and help myself improve by teaching some of these skills. Yeah. So I started that probably like in 2019, around Thanksgiving or something, I want to say. Oh, okay. So that's like six months before you even took your first flex. Yes. Okay. Absolutely. So I did that for a while. And then I, I stopped probably a couple of weeks before I took my first flex just to give myself time to really drill down on my own prep right and then kind of one flex led to another and another and another and i, <laughs> right. I didn't really pick it back up the way I, I meant to okay until after you were done correct yeah i picked it back up after i was done and then i also became an official seven sage tutor after my november score and i, I want to say i started in very early december what does a test look like from the perspective of a tutor that's an excellent question the big thing that i've noticed as a tutor is in the same way that the questions, the flaws and flaw questions are very, very cookie cutter. You see the same thing over and over again. Mm-hmm. The errors that students make are very repetitive <laughs> in, in large part. Yeah, There's certainly some outliers where a student will have some sort of a problem or, or make a mistake. And it's like, wow, I've never heard that before, but we can deal with it, but it's that's new. But a lot of it is students having the same kinds of problems. So you know, they're volatile in their scores. Yeah. You know, they'll say, you know, I, I go minus two on RC one day and minus seven the next day. Yeah. People having timing issues, people similar to me for a while saying I score consistently around a 170. I know I can score higher because even at scoring a 170, I still miss four or five easy questions on every PT. And that's why I don't have a 175. Stuff like that's very repetitive. Yeah. If you had to give some advice. What's the most common piece of advice that you find yourself giving to students? The most common thing is that the answer is not in the answer choices. The answer is in the stimulus. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good one. 
Uh, I like that one too. Hundred percent. Yeah, like whether it's th- this applies to algae, RC, and LR, right? It's like it really is in the stimulus, whichever section you're on, and. A corollary to that, which is something I say all the time, is the answers aren't your friends. They're trying to hurt you, right? The wrong ones are obviously trying to hurt you by baiting you to pick them. The right one is not helping either. The right one is trying to get you to overlook it, right? So that you fall for one of the wrong ones. Yeah, that's absolutely true. You cannot rely on the answer choices to get you where you want to go. You have to do the hard work and dig back into the stimulus. Yeah. So Turning to your applications, with a 179, your prospects are looking good. Where are you in the process? Have you applied this year? Yes. So I sent out all of my applications last year, mostly in October and November is when they went out. I see. So with your October application, you had to update them on your November score. I did. Yeah, absolutely. Right. And it is now early March as we're speaking. Have you heard back any good news? Yes. So I've heard back from all but one of the schools to which I applied, okay. and I've I've definitely got some good news. I was accepted at Columbia. I was accepted at the University of Chicago, and I was accepted at Georgetown. Wow. That's amazing. That's great news. Those are all great schools. Yeah. I was incredibly excited. I was very, very happy. That's great. What was the application process like? Was writing your personal statement a big pain in the butt or was it an enjoyable maybe not enjoyable manageable process so writing my personal statement was awful the because <laughs> uh, I, I really struggle with that kind of writing i'm much happier writing yeah. about something very academic and cerebral i know personal statement writing it's closer to kind of fiction writing you know if you listen to what david says about how to craft a narrative it really is seeing how a story emerges from the facts of your life, right? The facts are just the facts. The act of writing is the act of piecing these facts together so that a story comes out of it. It's very different, I think, act from what the kind of writing that we tend to do in university. Yeah, it really is. And it's something that I've always struggled with. You know, I had to take a creative writing course as an elective, I think, in high school when I did not do well there. So it was it was rough. I had Thankfully, quite a bit of help. I worked with Seven Sage Admissions, trying to get everything polished up and put me in a position where I could put the best foot forward. Yeah. Who was your consultant or editor? I worked with Celine Steelman. Oh, great. Yeah. She's wonderful. Yeah, she absolutely is. She's an incredibly incisive editor, and she gets things back incredibly quickly. I was always astounded. It felt like I would send a draft off to her. And, you know, the next time I check my email, she's got the draft back to me with, you know, three dozen comments on it. <laughs> nice. Nice. Okay. So that made it a bit less painful. Yeah. I, I was very glad because there were several instances where I would kind of put together a draft of a story or something. And she would just come back to me and basically say, just, just go back to the drawing board. This isn't even worth pursuing. Just come up with a different idea entirely. <laughs> Ouch. <laughs> It was good, though. I was happy because I figured, you know, after three years of work for an LSAT score, I didn't really want to have my chances at law school torpedoed because I wrote a bad personal statement or something. Right, right. How's your family reacting to the news? Are they finally seeing that you made the right decision in your three-year pursuit of a score? (laughs) Or are they like, oh, I don't know. I think you could have done it in a year. They're not thrilled, I don't think. Really? Why not? I had told them, and this was a bit of my impression as well, that I think this was my mistake more than anything, that getting a, a really high LSAT score, like 179, like close to perfect, along with a decent GPA, would produce a little more in the application process. Oh, you, you mean like HYS? Yeah, I think they thought I would probably get into HYS almost guaranteed, or if nothing else, that I'd have a little bit more in the way of merit aid to work with, or even just more offers from some of the lower T14, like like Michigan, Northwestern, Berkeley. Berkeley straight up denied me, didn't even waitlist me. It's hard to say. I mean, like with HYS, it's a crapshoot. It's such a black box, what it is that they're looking for. You know, they have enough applicants every, I mean, I'm sure you know this, they have enough applicants every year to fill their class with just like 175 and above, right? And like that too many. With some of the lower ranked T14s, I don't know for sure, but I would guess they're doing something like a yield protect where they know that you can get into other schools. So they don't want to hurt their 
own statistics. But man, I can't imagine that they're not happy with Columbia and Chicago and Georgetown. Yeah. So they're definitely happy with those schools. Absolutely. <laughs> they have very high standards and they're very academic people. So I think they were oh, expecting fireworks, fireworks, but I, oh, I'm I certainly see. quite content with how things have turned out. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, transferring your 1L year is an option, although <laughs> I feel like transferring away from Chicago is, I mean, you know, people do it. Actually, I wonder if people do it. I say people do it. I don't even know if that's true. If I had to bet, I would bet at least one student transferred away from Chicago, but I wouldn't bet a lot of money on it. Man, I'm with you. It seems reasonable <laughs> to assume someone's done it, but it also seems crazy because you, Chicago, yeah. is such a phenomenal it's school. It's so like, good. It's such a good school. Why would you leave? <laughs> yeah. I feel like, you know, that your legal career is going to be so long that I don't think Chicago is going to fail to open any doors that like an HYS would have opened otherwise, right? There are just so many other things aside from which school is on your diploma that's going to determine your success, long-term success as a lawyer. I agree. I completely agree. Well, James, thank you so much for taking the time to share with us your incredible story. If students want to get in touch with you, I don't know if you are accepting new students, but you know, maybe if they just want to send you a thank you note, what's the best way to reach you? Yeah, so you can find me on the Seven Sage DMs at jmarmaduke96, or you can shoot me an email, jmarmaduke96 at gmail.com. As far as new students, as we're recording this right now in early March, I'm not taking new students right now because I'm finishing a fellowship, but this fellowship will be over next month in April, towards the end of the month. So at that point, I would start taking new students and probably go back to tutoring pretty much full time. Gotcha. Okay. And I'm going to include that information in the show notes. Thanks again, James. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much. Hi, everyone. It's JY again. Thanks for listening. I already said this at the end of the last episode, but I really mean it, so I'll say it again. It's always a pleasure for me to have conversations with students and doubly delightful to speak to a student of a student. And it is my dream to one day speak to the student of a student of a student. I don't even care if that makes me feel old, I'd feel even more lucky. So study hard, and I hope to talk to you one day. That's it for this episode. Please take care of yourself, and see you next time.